Good morning. Good to see you all. I'm Lynn Kitchens. So glad to be here with you today. And today we get to talk about why we're even here in the first place. And how we got here. Literally, uh, Genesis 1 answers the most asked question in the world. How did the world begin? And one theologian said there's only two possible answers to that. Creation or speculation. Creation or speculation. One leads us to security and peace and a future. One leads us to confusion and unrest. And thank God that he equipped Moses to pen the true creation story for us so we don't have to speculate. When I was just a little girl, I've told this story before, but we had down in our basement in the north, we all had basements, and we would go down there, and I had a little uh, family bookcase in the corner of the room, and world book encyclopedias, maybe some of you had those white world book encyclopedias, when I was a little girl, there was one I, know, I knew to look in, and I would take it out, and it was a timeline that was trying to answer the question, how did the world begin? And it was a timeline with uh, animals. Well, anyway, I'll tell you what it was. Uh, so the first animal on the timeline, I can't remember what that was, but I do remember where it got to a place going along the timeline where there was a dog. And then if you continued on the timeline, the dog would turn into a horse. And if you continued on the timeline, the horse became an ape. And of course, we know what's next. The ape became man. And I used to study that because I just thought, how interesting. This makes a lot of sense. And so when I had my dog... My dog, Nancy, come in the room. I would just stare at her thinking, are you going to become a horse or not? I would rather have a horse. Nancy, the dog, didn't go in with the evolution thing, so she never did do that for me. She never grew little hooves. But when I think about that encyclopedia now, it makes me sad because it's an illustration of the crazy theories that float around in our world um, that come and go and they try to explain the origin of mankind. Our family recently went to a museum and the theories of the origin of mankind were presented as fact. From the moment you walked through the door, you were met with the voice of a movie star telling you about the Big Bang. Well, a movie star, it must be true. Uh, telling us and telling how, you know, we all were, came from a pool of sludge, the insects, the animals, and of course us. And I know that many believers wrestle with some of these theories. So we need to come right off the bat here and say, can someone adopt some of these theories and still know Christ? Absolutely. Our salvation is based on the sacrifice of Christ. But here's the sad part for me. Contained within the creation account are treasures of truth that anchor our walk with God. They are treasures for the taking. What are they? They are truths that answer the question, who is God and who are we? So within the creation story, we find treasures that can solidify what manner of God do we serve? 
and also solidify the fact that we have value in God's eyes. But those that are wrestling with speculation over creation may never open up those treasures that they could find in creation. Ted and I have a friend that's really funny. I think his mom's in here. She's right there. This is Danny. I don't know if he's ever done this to you. But Danny Wilkerson, he tells us if he's talking to someone and he can tell they're not listening to him, if they start zoning out and looking past him and looking behind, Danny will get real loud and say, and so that's where I buried the treasure. people start listening again (laughs) to people that are unaware of the creation story we want to say here's where God's buried the treasure but in reality it's not even very buried it's there for us to read and we want to take those people to the window and have them look outside and say here is where God's buried the treasure In his creation. And again, it's not very buried. If you look out there, it points to a creator. It displays the character of God. Look on your verse sheet, Romans 1. What can be known about God is plain to people because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And I want you to know that I understand that even within the creation account itself, there are questions unanswered that are open to debate. God left some mystery there, lots of mystery there. It's okay for Christians to debate some of those specific things. But we can't debate the main points. That God is the creator of heaven and earth. He created it out of nothing. And man was not created a creature that needed to evolve into something else. Man was created to bear the image of God. And I'm going to talk about that more in a minute. What an incredible thing. So woven within God's creation story that you read for your homework, we find treasures of who God is. We find treasures of who we are. Last week, Deb talked about three truths we learn right off the bat, that he's creator, he's eternal, and he's powerful. I want to find some more truths today when we look at his story, and we're just going to barely scratch the surface. And add some of your own thoughts about what you learn about who God is as we do this. In order to visualize and uh, connect the first three days of creation, we need to first go back to verses 1 and 2. So let's go to the very beginning. 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In Hebrew, the word for formless is tohu, which means ruin. In Hebrew, the word for void is bohu, which means emptiness. Darkness, we all know that that always represents sin, death, judgment. And the deep here are the abyss-like waters that are covering the surface of the earth. So this doesn't sound like a place we're going to go spend a vacation. 
this sounds sort of desolate, sort of chaotic, sort of in disorder and confused. And Deb mentioned last week that some believe this was a form of judgment on the originally sinless earth. That God had created earth, uh, perfect heaven and earth and angels, and yet some of the angelic realm rebelled. And this would have been when Satan was thrown down from heaven and the earth would have been judged. This is one thought. It would make some sense if we look at that in the sense that when Satan comes on the scene in Genesis chapter 3, he's already in a fallen state at that point. That's one thought. But some believe that this simply means the earth was not completed. It was not made with the purposes that God had designed for it. It was formless. Either way, God was the creator of heaven and earth. And heaven and earth in this terms means the universe. And he's also involved in taking that which is dark and confused and turning it into good. His spirit was hovering over the waters like a mother hen hovers over her nest as a picture of God's power, God's plans, God's creativity, and the future he had planned for our world. Look at what he did desire, Isaiah 45. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He didn't create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. And so the first three days of creation, God took that which was formless and void, and he made it good. So remember that as we look at the first three days of creation. It's God making something good and perfect for his plans. Look at verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning. The first day, God first spoke existence into existence, light, which changed a world that was enveloped in darkness. And he did this in a day. And here again, this is one of the concepts Christians might choose to debate. Uh, here's some of the reasons we can support a literal day. The Hebrew word for day is yom. And when you hear the Hebrew word yom, Y-O-M, and it's used with a number as it is here, first day, it always in the Old Testament meant a 24-hour time period. Another reason we can think that is when you go into the fourth day of creation and we see that days and years and seasons are put into place, it's suggesting that the normal system of days are already in operation. Um, and also later we know that Israel, when they had their teachings about the Sabbath, it was based on God's six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. Look at Exodus on your verse sheet. In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So on this day, the earth begins its daily rotation on its axis. And we know that God created a natural light here that separated the darkness. 
God says the light is good. Not that he wondered, I wonder if the light's going to be good. He's just announcing what he knows to be true. That it's good and perfect. It's going to fulfill his purpose. And notice that he doesn't pronounce the dark good. Light is the prerequisite for life and existence. Light is who God is. And we don't see the sun and moon created at this point. So I'm going to throw out these two views again here so you can debate your friends. We want to say it's impossible to have light without the sun. This is referring to the sun here. And the people that maybe hold um, that view, I'm going to talk about that in a second. But here's what we need to remember. Nothing's impossible for God. And do you remember when the plagues in Egypt came and one of them was darkness? Was Israel surrounded in darkness? No. They had the miraculous light of God around them. When they were in the dark in the wilderness, were they in total darkness? No. God provided a light to guide them in the wilderness. So in that sense, here on day one, the creator can be the provider of a light that would transform the darkness, just as he did for Israel, just as he does for us spiritually. But some hold the position that the sun I mentioned earlier was already created at this point and that they interpret these verses to mean it was not visible, it was not in the position God desired it to be, and so at this point, that's what he does. Either of those positions, who's the creator of light? God is a creator. It says God divided the light from the darkness. And this was an important thing for Israel to hear because in the beginning they would learn God makes divisions. He does this often. And in God's law, God would make a distinction between uh, the holy and the profane. And I think that here God divides the light from the darkness. It's illustrating the very same thing. He divides goodness from evil god gives a name to the light day and to the dark night and the act of naming in the ancient near east was an act of sovereign dominion when someone named something it meant they had the authority over it they had the dominion over it god is claiming his sovereignty and dominion as creator and i just think okay we just get the picture of this whole story, this kind of unformed, kind of void, kind of disordered world, and God enters it, he intervenes with light, and it's almost impossible to look at this first day of creation without recognizing what it means for us spiritually. Dark and light always represent good and evil. So when you consider your salvation story, did any of this sound familiar to you on the first day of creation? Apart from God, we're all in the dark. We are all tohu, ruined by sin. We are all bohu, ruined and empty, uh, as the Hebrew words mean. But God's spirit of grace hovers over the souls of those who are lost. Peter tells us God desires that no man perish. And so he hovers over us, and here's what God did for us. He said, let there be light. It was promised in Isaiah. Look at your verse, Isaiah 9. 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And that light came. God became light in the form of a little child in a manger. To take us out of our darkness. Look at John 8. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We get to the light of God through his son. And knowing the light of the world, he's taken us from darkness into the realm of the righteous. No longer tohu, no longer bohu, no longer ruined and empty, but cleansed and wearing the righteousness of who is the light of the world. This is the goodness of God. This is the mercy of God. This is our redemption from God. This is the intervention of God in the midst of our sin, just as he intervened in that darkness on the first day of creation. On this day of creation, God began a work of light. That will have a grand finale in the age to come when there will never be darkness again. Because the light of the world will reign on his throne for all eternity. Let me read you this verse from Revelation 22. It didn't make it on the sheet. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It all started on the first day of creation. So who is God when we consider this creation of light on day one? And the light he continues to be in our lives and in the world, we can just say God is holy. He is good. He is merciful. He is redeemer. That's who he is. Day two, verse six. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So God's separating the waters that are on the atmosphere, I'm sorry, the atmosphere from the waters on the earth by creating space between that they call heaven. Now, this isn't the heaven where God dwells. This is what we would call the sky. And the Hebrew word is rakia, which means to spread out. And it's fun to look at some of the ways in the Old Testament uh, they described the heaven. Above them, the sky. They used words like a tent curtain, sapphire pavement, molten glass, a veil. This was created on day two. So we can envision now earth with its waters and a separation, the clouds now carrying the moisture above the sky. And before this point... It seems as though the earth was surrounded in water and also the waters of the atmosphere were mingling with those waters around the earth 
which also gives us that idea. This really is a representation of disorder uh, when you see these waters mixed together. There was probably um, a watery fog surrounding the earth, kept little visibility and little light. So we continue to see through these first three days of creation, God bringing order to the unruly. God brought order out of the chaotic waters. God doesn't say that's good like he did in the first day of creation because he's not done with the waters yet. He's got some more to do. Let's look at day three, dry land and plant life. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. The dry land finally appears. We can begin to make sense out of that which was void and formless. Creation begins to shift from bringing order into bringing fullness. God's work involved taking that which was barren and establishing fullness and fertility. And think about what that must have looked like. Have you been much in the mountains and you come upon a wild flower field and the beauty and the color. Now we've got greens and reds and pinks, and we've got movement as plants and trees are on this earth, and it looks beautiful. Fertile lands appear, I think, unlike anything you and I have ever seen. One day we'll see that. The seas have boundaries, and they surround the land, and it's all a picture of our great God who makes all things new and good. And it's great to think about, too, in these verses, it's God who called into the process right here of reproduction and of fertilization and fertility and renewal. He calls for it right here. One man said this, it's a created capacity from the true Lord of life for us to make more of our own kind. And that's what these plants were called to do. So do schools still do show and tell today? Like, oh, they do? Okay, good. I was wondering about that. I was thinking back to a show and tell. Um, I don't know why this was at our house, but someone brought to my parents, they were growing peanuts, and they brought a part of a peanut plant to our house, and it was just a root, and I was so shocked. I thought there were peanut trees or something that you get peanuts, but the peanut was growing on the root of this plant, and so I brought that in for show and tell. I thought everybody think it was the greatest thing. Now, before I even knew I was going to do this, last week my sister said to me on the phone, not knowing I was talking about this, she goes, Lynn, remember that time you went in the backyard and picked that weed and said to the classroom it was wheat and you took it to show and tell? And I thought, what kind of a weird kid was I? (laughs) I took two different plants, a peanut plant and a weed from my backyard. That was my show and tell. Other kids are bringing cool stuff. I'm bringing weeds from my backyard. 
Every day is show and tell day for God. Every single day. Every day you look outside. Every day you walk to your car. Every day you look up at a sunset. Every day you cut some flowers and put them in a vase. It's show and tell day for God. That's his creation. These last two days of creation show us a God who creates purpose and generosity. And he has abundance that he gives us. He took something vast and empty and he filled it with goodness. And how sad not to realize that the God who will do that with the earth wants to do that in our lives. That's who he is. That's a treasure for the taking when we study his creation. We come to him with our empty, hurting hearts. He fills them with goodness, making them fertile, making them rich enough that we can reproduce our faith into somebody else's heart. That's who he is. That's what he does in the hand of God. Our emptiness, our brokenness is transformed to abundance. Who is God? When we look at this day, we think, He is peace, he is healer, he is able. Psalm 147 tells us this. He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. In John 10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He's brought form and goodness into that which was void. And so these next three days of creation, now God is establishing harmony and dominion on the earth. So we're going to start by looking at day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars, verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons, days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. A few years ago, Ted and I were in another country visiting, and I found myself having coffee with this young woman that I didn't really know. And um, the country was beautiful. The city I was in on this day was so polluted, I'd never seen anything like it in my life. Um, There was nothing, no car, no tree leaf, no anything that didn't have a gray film over it. If you washed your car in an hour, it was covered again in a gray film. You could see, but it was gray. I don't know if you can picture a gray day in Texas, maybe in the winter. The sky was gray. Everything was gray as far as you can see. Ted and I decided, let's get a look at the city. So we took an elevator up to the tallest building in the middle of the city, and we ran to the window like you would do in New York City if you wanted to look out, and literally we could see this far in front of our face. We couldn't see anything in the city. I just want you to get an idea of how polluted it was. So when this girl says to me across from the table, what has surprised you about our country? I did something real stupid. (laughs) I said, I'm surprised by the pollution. 
Now, this girl wasn't wanting to hear that. She got very defensive <laughs> and angry and said, Look up. There's the sky. We have a sky. There's the sky. And so I kind of started saying all these great things about her country after that. And later I thought, first of all, I thought, what a dumb thing that I said that. Secondly, I thought, she doesn't know. She has no idea. She doesn't know what, what God's creation looks like, the colors of the sunrise and the sunset, the brightness of the sun, the vastness of the stars, the face on the moon. She doesn't know about the color blue of the sky, the white billowing clouds, none of that. Later, a young friend of hers named Roy from the same city came to stay with Ted and I. Now, in Alito, because there's not so many lights, sometimes we have some great nights of seeing a lot of stars. And I'll never forget when Roy first went like this. He had never seen anything like it. He gasped. He was 25 years old, and he had never seen anything like it. And so every night when Ted and I were sleeping, Roy had placed a chair in the dead center of our backyard, and he would tilt it back and stare up at the sky. And he did it every night. And guess what he was doing? Taking some treasures about his creator, learning some truths about who God is. A great God is a great God of creates such beauty. So at this point, God created the sun and the moon and the stars with age, or they, as I'd mentioned, had been created earlier but are now put into position and given the job to function permanently in this position. God assigned the heavenly luminaries to rule over the heavens and serve as signs for seasons and days and years and to distinguish between night and day. Look at Psalm 147, verse 4. God determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Now, I just want to throw out here, the stars are subject to the will of their creator. They are witnesses to God's glory and no more. Um, they should lead us to worship God and not be worshipped themselves. And you and I know that a lot of people <laughs> use stars as their gods. And that is not what they were created to do. But Roman 1 lets us know humans often reject their creator and worship his creation. And that's what some people choose to do with the stars. Okay, let's look at day five. Creatures of the sea and sky. Verse 20. 
God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw it was good and blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and morning, the fifth day okay we need to try to envision this it was dark it was empty now it's green now it's got color and now you look up and there's color in the sky flying around you and you look down into the seas and there's every incredible um, thing swimming from whales to a tadpole all in the waters there is life Moving greatly, life came into being by the direct command of God, not by chance. It was a direct command of God. And did you notice how it says they were made according to their kind? You would not find a shark becoming a stork. (laughs) They were made according to their kind so they could reproduce and maintain their species. That's how they were created. And I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking about what about all those new dog combinations out there? (laughs) What about the cockapoo and the yorkie-poo and the (laughs) poop-dee-doo? What about them? They're still dogs. (laughs) There will be adaptations in God's creation, but they will not be adopting and adapting into becoming a new species. The species were made according to their kind. Now, I thought it's interesting. Again, the pagan nations love to worship the large animals of the sea, and Israel's hearing as they read Moses' word, we have a mighty God. He created the large sea monsters. You don't worship them. He created them. In fact, I didn't have time to do it, but every single day of creation, there were things that the pagan nations were creating, were worshiping, and they were all creation, not the creator. Israel's learning. Our God is the one who brought all those things into existence. They're not gods at all. Our God is the one true God. And then we read something we haven't read yet. God blessed them. And my first thought was, he's blessing the fish and the birds? Yes, they're beautiful. They're going to accomplish what he wants them to accomplish. His blessing involved them to say, reproduce, multiply, and be used as I designed you to be used. When we stand back and look at what God has done and the fact that we see he upholds creation, from the first days of creation, we should ask ourselves, what am I worried about? He will be faithful to his creation. He will be faithful to me. I love the words in that old song about the sparrow. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free, because his eye is on a sparrow. So I know he watches me. Treasures for the taking. In the creation story. Colossians 1. Here's a verse how he upholds creation. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And this same God in the next verse of Jude 24 upholds us. Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Who is God? He is mighty. He is ruler. He is life. He is faithful. But who are we? Let's look at day six. Verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This day reveals both the culmination and the goal of creation, for it included the creation of man. God has brought order and fullness to creation, and now he creates human life to enjoy it, to rule it, to inhabit it. You know that old song, uh, Morning Has Broken, that Cat Stevens made real popular in the 70s, for those Cat Stevens fans. I always loved the one line that said, Mine is the sunlight. Mine is the morning. When I first used to sing it, I think, That's selfish and wrong. It's God's gift to us. The sunrise every morning. It is for us to use to bring glory to Him. What a great God. First, God created life for land in the animals of all kinds, notice again, they're made according to their kind. Was man made according to the animal's kind? No, he didn't come from their kind. He would not evolve from their kind. Man's creation is beyond belief. Human life was set apart from animals in relation to God. It's amazing. And so write these three Ps down. Here's the three ways we're different than an animal. By God's divine plan, by his divine pattern, and by his divine purpose. We just read it in the scripture here, plan, pattern, purpose. What's his divine plan? Let us make man. 
The plan to create man was set in motion by the triune God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, counseling as God together. This is a tribute to the excellency of man. We see in the rest of these creation days, God just speaking and commanding. Never do we see him having a consultation within himself in the Trinity of God. This expresses that what he's about to do is great and wonderful. He does this for us to give us dignity and to show us our worth in his eyes. The divine pattern, he says, let us make man in the image of God. Ah, I I can't even imagine the privilege that that is. We are not animals. We are created to have intellect, emotion, and will that God carries within him. That's what we have to be created in his image. It means we have personality and we can love and we have wisdom. And at this beginning of creation, man had holiness. We had goodness. We had justice. Human life was meant to be a reflection of God's spiritual nature. And I think this privilege is still our purpose today. We are entrusted to conform to the image of Christ, who is the image of our Creator, Father. And this way, we get to have a relationship with Him. We have the capacity to fellowship with the Creator God. Only man is able to do this. And you noticed it includes both male and female. We are created in the image of God as much as any man is. And I know next week we're going to learn more about that. The divine purpose. God says here it's twofold. First of all, produce more of your own. To multiply. Be fruitful. Fill the earth. By creating life, think about this. When we create life, we are reflecting God who is the creator of life. So having a child is actually an act of worship because we are reflecting the life that God gives us. That's one of the mandates. We are sharing in the work of God when we do uh, reproduce. And then we're called to have dominion over the created world. All those things God created. So you think about all the potentials on the earth, laid out before man, laid out before woman. And God saw that it was good, except how many of you noticed a little different word there on the last day? God saw it was what? Very good. Very good. You'll have to come back next week to see how man handled it all. I'm not going to spoil that. Okay, we're going to close by just reading the last day. Turn to chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. 
And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work he had done. So he blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from his work that he had done in creation. Okay, this is funny. You know, I don't know, as a child reading this, I always pictured like God taking a nap on the seventh day, (laughs) on the Sabbath. Did God need rest? No. Rest here actually means cease. The word rest means cease. So what it's talking about is heaven and earth are finished. On this day, God made it holy because he's celebrating the completion of his incredible creation. And Israel later was to honor and also rest on this day or cease because they were supposed to be reminded we are also God's creation, the nation of Israel had been set apart and called by God to represent him on the earth. And rest for them on that day would be to worship, to honor, and to think about God throughout the day. The day belonged to him. The New Testament uses the idea of Sabbath rest in a spiritual sense. We cease striving for Christ In other words, doing the good works he's called us to do when we enter our final rest with him, the inheritance that he has waiting for us for all eternity. But I like the word rest while we're still here on earth because there is no rest apart from God, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. And so the non-Christian that ignores the treasure and doesn't take into account this story of creation. And the non-Christian that ignores the creation outside his window or worships the creation outside of his window without looking at who the creation is pointing to, he doesn't understand the treasures for the taking. This is the man who will not find true answers to the question, Who is God? Who am I? If they've chosen speculation over creation, that person will find no rest. As God's creation, we will be restless until we find our rest in him, our creator. Look at Psalm 62. In fact, everyone get it, and we're going to read it out loud together. Ready? The last verse. My, ready? Go, let's go. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Praise God. Amen.